0: Hi, I'm Jen. I love watching horror movies. I also have PTSD and I go to a lot of therapy.
1: I'm Lara. I
0: have anxiety and depression and love having the shit scared out of me. (laughs) Wait, what? I'm Mike. I'm a therapist and I love riffing on horror movies.
2: We love watching horror movies. We love them for how much they scare us and for how much they help us. Because
0: we love talking about mental health, a.k.a. how crazy we are, and the <laughs> role the horror genre can play in our wellness and self-care, we've started a brand new podcast called Psycho Analysis. Each episode, we'll talk about a movie and how it relates to a different topic in the mental health
1: field.
2: Our episodes drop every other Thursday starting on July 9th on the Consequence Podcast Network. Listen to find out how... How can can heal. heal. <laughs> <laughs> consequence podcast network
1: i don't want to scare
0: anyone but i'm going to give it to you straight about jason his body was never recovered from the lake after he drowned and if you listen to the old timers in town they'll tell you he's still out there some sort of demented creature surviving in the wilderness full grown by now
2: some folks claim they've even seen him
0: right in this area
2: From the cold, chilly cabins of Camp Crystal Lake To outer space We are Halloweenies! Greetings and welcome once again to Halloweenies, a Jason Voorhees podcast, and this is a very special bonus episode, and I am joined by
0: Mike Vanderbilt.
2: From- That's right. No time for nicknames on this episode, everybody. I'm Justin Gerber once again, and this is a very special interview with Mr. Tom McLaughlin, of course, a director and writer of the, uh, the episode you just listened to, hopefully, not that long ago, which was our episode on Friday the 13th, Part 6. Jason Lives, and it is a interview not just about Jason Lives, but about his long and lengthy career behind the camera and the professions he's had and the incredible people he's met over the years. Mike, there are a lot of great stories in here, weren't there?
0: Oh, my God. So many. Uh, what a career for this guy. So many great anecdotes. I think that even if you're not a fan of the Friday the 13th series, which I don't understand why you're listening to our podcast, I think this is an absolutely <laughs> fascinating listen, listen if you're into film history.
2: I agree. And, and, it, and for our listeners, don't worry. He does offer his take on whether or not he thinks that Jason Lives is better than The Irishman. So please stick around to the very <laughs> end of that conversation. And uh, for other listeners who've been listening to us from the very beginning, from years ago when we were doing the Halloween films, He offers his two cents on Halloween 2018. So, once again, stick around for that conversation towards the end of the podcast. But a lot of uh, fantastic stories that you're going to hear.
0: You're going to hear from Quentin uh, Quentin Tarantino, Anthony Perkins. You're going to hear about Woody Woody Allen. Allen.
2: You're going to hear about Dick Van Dyke, uh, mimes. Get ready. This is really date with with Angel Angel. Dino De Laurentiis imitations. Not that's right. Not just Mike. Not just Mike Goffman. Uh, we've got Tom McLaughlin to add to the, to the, to the cast of, of characters on this podcast to do Dino DeLaurentis imitations. So without further ado, let's get to that interview. Okay, well, as promised uh, during our introduction, we have a terrific director from the Friday 13th franchise, namely the episode that we will be covering for August, Jason Lives. And that director is...
1: yes tom mclaughlin
2: there is and by the way everybody listening there was no prep for that bit that was just a fresh let's see let's see what he does with it and it was a i love the delay and but it is a is a pleasure to have you i hate
1: i hate introducing myself that's the thing is i gotta you know i gotta do something else other than just go hi it's tom mclaughlin
2: yeah, well, it's funny because, you know, we, I listen to so many podcasts and there's always the, the big introduction of who's going to be on the podcast. It's always in the title. And then, then there's still that third introduction within the podcast. So we were trying to figure out a way to switch it up a little bit as natural as humanly possible. It's
1: not you, it's me. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, this is, a, this is a real treat. Uh, Jason Lives is, is, is one of our favorite entries in this franchise. So, again, thanks, thanks so much for joining us. How is everything going and I guess are you still in Hollywood right now? Where are you right now?
1: Well, I actually uh, moved out of Hollywood right just before the pandemic hit and moved into a a home in Burbank, which is just over the hill. Um, And, uh, you know, just as I got in here and started figuring out what I wanted to, you know, do with my uh, torture chamber and all the other stuff that I needed to put together. (laughs) Of course. You know, the pandemic hit. So... You know, it just like stopped everything cold, everything, you know, be, you know, had to be put on hold until, you know, I could get people to come and work in the house and do all that. So it was, you know, and still is a bit frustrating. But the good side of the whole thing is like, you know, you got no place to go. So what do you got to do? Sit down and write. So I've been, you know, kind of cranking out a number of different scripts, uh, both a short uh, film for this uh, series. Uh, called Black Veil, um, that uh, I hope we we're going to do. It, it, it was again something that was in the pipeline, and then mm-hmm. that was put on hold as well. Um, and uh, and then uh, you know a new horror film uh, that I'm hoping you know <laughs> I'm not going to make so expensive that I'm not going to be able to make it. But you know, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to just put the vision out there.
0: Now, when you moved to a new house, you did bring the Jason tombstone and keep it in the backyard, yes? Oh, yes,
1: it is out there, um, as is the uh, his coffin is in the basement, um, which is it's great at this place because I have a a, a real basement. I mean, a big ass, old school, the length of the house kind of basement where you go down the small stairs that you've seen in every, you know, cliched horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go in the basement. And as you go down and and make your first right turn, there sits a coffin. So I can hardly wait till workers show up, you know, somebody to do the plumbing or electrical or the heating, because I used to scare the shit out of people.
2: (laughs) Well, I'm imagining the Burbank Neighborhood Association filing some type of a complaint about this tombstone in your backyard. Um, (laughs) I'm not sure what the vibe is like right now in Burbank
1: um you know it's it's again that thing if you know you move in and you know you kind of want to know who your neighbors are and then you kind of want them to see kind of what you're going to do to remodel you know the the, the house cuz i was going to do a completely different look to the whole front of the house
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh you know and then because of covid you know it's like somebody across the street going <laughs> hi neighbor. hi how are you <laughs> you know and that's it you know there's no friendship there's no you know getting to know everybody's you know behind the mask and uh, you know a, a distance away so i'm you know I, I i'm hoping to get the chance to get to know everybody around and then you know come halloween time certainly my presence is going to be <laughs> uh, god only knows but yeah i mean i for years have uh, been a part of a group of guys that call ourselves the horror club and of course we put on, you know, major yard shows, you know, in different people's places over the past God I don't know how many decades. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we get together, um, usually every month it's obviously stopped because of this, uh, where we watch some obscure horror movie that somebody, you know, has found and says, Oh yeah, you Who's
0: it, who's in your horror group with you? are there, uh, are there other uh, luminaries of the horror genre that hang out
1: with you Annette? Actually, actually not. These are really like just like hardcore fans. Um, like, a, you know, a, a guy that's like a, a, a hairdresser who has like five sons who are all like just rabid Friday the 13th fans and, mm-hmm. and horror fans in general. Uh, my good friend Stephen Banks, who I did a show with him called uh, Stephen Banks Home Entertainment.
0: Oh, yeah. One of my, one of my favorites on Showtime.
1: Yeah, yeah, it was it was and of course we've been best friends for I don't know how many years. So, you know, he comes, his son's, my son, um, you know, so it's 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 not like the masters of horror group with that Nick Garris put together, you know, oh. and the dinners and that was like everybody and anybody that had done anything. It you know, it turned from maybe there's like 15 of us in the beginning to there must have been 40, 50, you know, at some of the later dinners. And wow, wow. I think Nick just sort of said, we got to stop. It's too, too many people. We don't have a chance to, to talk to everybody. <laughs> but in, in the good old days, it was amazing because you sit, you know, you sit down and suddenly Wes Craven would sit next to you and uh-huh. we just start talking about stuff. Uh, another time, Quentin Tarantino sat next to me and started telling me about this idea for a grindhouse movie that he wanted to do. And he went into elaborate detail you know, about, you know, what, what, what he was about to make mm-hmm. with all this other stuff that, you know, ended up not being, you know, in the film or kind of in the trailers and stuff. Um, but, I mean, it, it was it's just amazing, you know, uh, John Landis and uh, um, uh, Rob Zombie and, I mean, you, you name it, they, you know, Nick got a hold of them, and had them there. Um, and then finally started getting the female directors and that was great because it was just a boys club for so long. And then little by little, you know, you know, we started getting the female directors in. And so now it's, you know, it's a mix of, you know, the real, you know, young directors just, you know, breaking ground for the first time. Plus, you know, all the people that, you know, go, you know, way back, you know, Tom Holland and God. Larry Cohen, you know, who we just lost, and yeah. so many, you know, just great, great directors. So
0: getting into the interview, now you uh, studied mime under Marceau Marceau in Paris, and that led you to being discovered by Dick Van Dyke, yes? Well,
1: yeah, there's sort of like a lot of in between all that, you know. Um, the the reason I went to mime is because I was doing rock and roll during the 60s. I was a lead singer of a band. And I, you know, I danced, I did stunts, I, you know, blew up things on stage, you know, the the Who and Jimi Hendrix were the big influences, like, you've got to put on a show. And then I got to a point where it's like, you know, there must be something more physical I could do. And then somebody mentioned the word mime, which I never even heard of. And Marcel Marceau happened to be coming to LA. So I went and saw him. (laughs) I didn't particularly care for what he did. It just wasn't me, you know, I was a teenage rocker, but I thought, well, you know, he's the, you know, the grand fumage of mine. So, um, you know, I went backstage and met him and he says, well, why don't you come to Paris? I'm opening the school. So, uh, we, you know, you make no money in rock and roll. So I got the one and only regular job I ever had in my life, made as much as I could make in six months and then went over there, you know, as a starving artist. (laughs) Um, then when I came back, um, I was very influenced to want to make, uh, movies that were visual So I created basically a production company called Cinemime, you know, that was going to be just things that really relied more on the, you know, what you see. Um, And you know, in the process of doing that, I created a mime company called the LA Mime Company. Then Dick Van Dyke came and saw one of our shows and says, you know, who writes and directs your stuff? And I said, I do. And he goes, I'd love you, you know, to have me have you guys on my new series. And, you know, if you could write something and kind of make me the sixth member of the L.A. Mime Company, I would love that. It was like, you kidding? My God. <laughs> so, you know, that led to an Emmy nomination for writing for me, which into the Writers Guild. And then kind of from there, you know, I just started writing scripts that I wanted to direct um, until, it, you know, One Dark Night* finally, you know, got there. Yeah, up. so
0: how did that taste of success, how old were you when you got nominated for that Emmy? Uh,
1: 26.
0: I like that's pretty young. Like, how did that affect your uh, career? Like, uh, maybe then and uh, for moving forward.
1: Well, uh, you know, not a whole lot. Um, for for one, I had to really fight, you know, to, to get the uh, be included because they had so many writers, right. Right. and I was writing on the show to um, be able to have more uh, material that we could perform on the show, and it was sort of like this you know, uh, little plot that the producers had, you know, let's give these young guys a break and, and then he can keep giving us sketches that, you know, we can use Lucille Ball when she guessed it or Freddie Prince when he guessed it or Carl Reiner or Carol Burnett or Chevy Chase, you know, whoever was the, co- you know, the guest star. And so I'd write all this stuff. And then, you know, when the show was nominated, uh, it was an episode where I had written two sketches. So I was all excited and said, you know, hey, this is great, and I, you know, part of this. And the producers go, what are you talking about? And I go, you know, because it's got two of my sketches. You never wrote anything for this show.
2: <laughs> what? Oh boy.
1: I, 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 I went, wait a minute, you know. And it's like, no, you you're not going to say anything either. And it was like, holy shit. So I ended up going to the Writers Guild. I had to prove, you know, all these, you know, things that I'd handwritten for all these episodes and all that you know was my material and then they had to go against you know writers guild members and very huge producers at that time to take little old me you know and defend me and it ended up you know working out and I ended up at the Emmys sitting there in my you know tux with everybody else but unfortunately it was our show the Carol Burnett variety show and like Three Saturday Night Lives, and that was the first year of Saturday Night Oh,
2: wow, yeah. That's the heyday right there.
1: You knew from the, from the <laughs> jump it was going to be one of the three Saturday Night Lives. That were win. But I had my big, you know, Frank Capra, you know, one man against the <laughs> machine, uh, you know, experiences, so, you know, that was kind of a big win for me.
2: We'll definitely have to talk about, yeah, we'll definitely have to talk about Frank Capra a little bit later on in this interview, too. We do have a lot of questions about about that experience, but, you know, hearing these stories at such a young age, having to kind of go up against these heavyweights who are already established in the industry just to get some credit, and, you know, having lived, I guess, all of your life in the Los Angeles-Hollywood area, was there ever a point where you are just kind of dismissive and just felt like, you know what, I don't want to put up with this? Or was there such a drive in you that you were determined to make it no matter what?
1: You know, I, I tell this to people, all the time, you know, because I, I teach filmmaking, too, uh, as an adjunct at uh, Chapman, uh, Chapman uh, University, Dodge College. And, you know, say, well, what does it take? What's the it take, you know, to do this? And I said, you know, I hate this to tell you, but you really got to be kind of stupid. Because <laughs> if you look at the odds, you're, you're not going to do it. You're not. You're like one in a million. But no. you have to say to yourself, I'm that one. And I don't care. Everybody tells me I'm, you know, crazy. It's not going to happen. You're going to end up, you know, washing plates someplace, you know, to make any money, you know. And you just have to go, you know what? Fuck it. Watch this. And just keep going. And for every door that closed, you know, you had to go and draw a door like a cartoon and and find a way to open it. And it it just was that kind of, you know, and I don't want to say like I was aggressive, you know, but it was just like you don't give up you just don't give up. And just why I'm talking about this, I do have to mention Frank Capra when I met him and he sort of became my mentor when I was trying to get this movie um, with an angel off the ground and nobody wanted a fantasy movie. EP had not come out yet. No splash, no mannequin, none of that kind of stuff about a fantasy female character, much less an angel. And I came <laughs> to Frank and I said, nobody wants to do this, Frank. What do I do? And he said the three magic words long before Nike just do it. I said, but Frank, <laughs> just do it. Okay. Yes, sir. <laughs> and that, you know, that had a lot to, to do with it. Every time I started to give up, it's like, nope, just do it. You know, pull yourself up in, in the last round like Rocky and get back in the fight and, you know, just, you know, go the distance some way, some somehow, and hopefully something happens. And I've had this sort of I don't know, I guess Forrest Gump type existence where I ended up being in places where something would occur. That was like, and like, I goes at the Monterey Pop Festival in the, in the first row and saw all these incredible, you know, rock and rollers that none of us had seen before uh, and was like, holy shit, I got to do this. This is great. <laughs> and then that, you know, turned me into, you know, a rock and roller. And then we're opening for the doors and I mean, Butterfly and the animals and all these groups in the 60s. And we were just like 15, 16-year-old kids. And we just, you know, it's that thing of just being in the right place at the right time.
0: So now, uh, Date with an Angel is probably your most Capra-esque film, even to the town in oh, the movie being named Bedford. Uh, I was yeah. wondering, how, how did you how did you meet Frank Capra? And how did he influence your work? And most importantly, is there any Capra in Jason Lives
1: um, okay. Uh, let me ask, answer the last question. first. <laughs> yes. Um, believe it or not, what I, what the main thing I got from Capra was, um, if you want to have a successful film, you've got to have characters that the people like that they're rooting for. And I was looking at so many of these slasher movies where they were just obnoxious people and the audience would cheer when they got killed you know, cause like, yeah, get that bastard, get that bitch, you know, and I didn't want to do that. I, I wanted to take the Capra words and, you know, have us care about these characters, have us like them. They may be doing something, you know, you know, crazy to some people, but it's like kind of logical to the character, you know, like Tommy, you know, going to see, he just wanted to see the remains of Jason and going to burn, you know, whatever's there. And then he, you know, he has a, you know, psychotic snap. He does the thing with the pole that, you know, and that brings the electricity and off he goes. But his intention, you know, was was real and uh, honest. And through the movie, you know, he's just trying to fix, you know, the screw up that he did. And, you know, Megan finds him attractive. You know, the other kids are all like supportive of the little kids in the, that, that moment with the two girls, uh, you know, coming to the little uh, Nancy Ann character in bed. I mean, all those are are very influenced by the Capra kind of thing of, you know, kind of caring about the characters and having a little sense of humor so that they the audience would laugh, um, you know, like at the no exit book or whatever. <laughs> so they just were things that made you sort of like, you know, the world that you were in. So then when somebody gets killed, it's like, ah oh, shit, I like them. You know, or, oh, God, oh, no, 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 no. You know, even the sheriff with the backbending, you know, you kind of liked him. He, he was just going to try to save his daughter, you know, and suddenly, you know, he <laughs> gets the ultimate yoga pose. <laughs> um, That's a great way to put it. That, that had a lot to do with, you know, the, the, the Capra influences and his movies and my, my talks with him. But how I met him was I was going to this place called Sherwood Oaks Experimental College on Hollywood Boulevard in the 70s. And this crazy guy, Gary Shuzette, and uh, who's the brother of Ron Shuzette, who wrote Alien, uh, Gary had this idea to create a school where it would only be people in the industry that would teach you. And he did an amazing job of getting people, you know, that, you know, nobody was doing these sort of seminar type things at all in those days. So, like, you know, John Cassavetes came, and we went to a screening of uh, of uh, oh God, uh, just blanked on the name of the thing. A Woman Under the Influence.
2: Oh yeah. And we true. saw like
1: a you know three hour cut of that, and oh, then he would talk to us. Okay, what did you guys think? What do you want? What would you think you want <laughs> to you know cut or change or whatever? Scorsese came in with Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore. Hmm. Same thing, guys. You know, what do you think? What do you think? You know, of course, and we were like tongue tied. We didn't know what to say to him. <laughs> You know, this unknown actor, Sylvester Stallone, came in and had us go see this movie, Rocky, that he made. Um, and, you know, was kind of insecure about, you know, what people were going to think. And it was just one thing after the, the other, you know, uh, uh, Kirshner, uh, Irving Kirshner, who did the second Star Wars and stuff. And Frank Capra came to one of these. Um, and he ran It's a Wonderful Life, to show us. I had only seen the last scene on TV over the years. I never saw the whole movie, somehow I always ended up tuning in the last scene, <laughs> especially and it when it would play all day. <laughs> yeah, I you know because it just you know it was like I, I wasn't into any of that kind of stuff in those days. So you know, but I'd see that last scene and whatever whatever it was about you know what had, what had been set up through the whole movie and paid off there emotionally always got to me. So suddenly now I'm seeing the whole movie and I was like, you know, in shock that it like, I was so taken by it. And I went up to him afterwards and, you know, extended my hand and I said, I I, I, I want to do what you do, you know, and he laughed and he goes, you know, well, you know, you can. So, you know, let's talk about this. And he gave me his phone number. He gave me his address. He says, you know, right, call, whatever. And I was like, bowled over. So then of course I went and tried to see every capra movie i could and there was no you know vhs's of blu-rays or whatever you know during that period so Mm -hmm. it was all about going to the movies um trying to find whenever they played the little you know independent houses to try to you know catch up on these things and occasionally on tv you would see something so i just became sort of a full out you know student of his and um you know as i said he was like my mentor it's like what would capra do you know and then eventually Scorsese got into that mix and it was like, okay, if it was Capra and Scorsese together, what would it be? So, you know, there's always somebody, you know, I mean, artists steal, you know, they don't borrow, they steal. And any good artist will tell you that, that, you know, Mozart was, you know, borrowing from the people or stealing from the people that influenced him and art, everything music, you know, it's always a question of, you know, in the beginning you do somebody else until you eventually do yourself. Um, so, Capra, um, you know, when I started writing Date with an Angel, I started sending him drafts. And, you know, he was very supportive and and had, you know, like minor notes and things. Um, And then finally, you know, when I was, you know, got the thing made, I sent it to him. And uh, he said, you know, it's a wonderful, uh, uh, it's a wonderful film. You know, I loved it. And I go, I got the quote of all time for this movie to. You know, Dave the you know, executive producer, and he goes, you know, "Who knows from a Frank Capra? You don't want to put that on the picture. No you one knows the hell Capra <laughs> Oh
2: my and God! Tell
1: Italian, you know, for crying out but you know. And so that quote, you know, was in the trade papers in the report of Variety, but it never actually got on the, the, the poster. And the movie, you know, was like the last of the. Dino, the DEG, uh, Dino uh, De Laurentiis Entertainment Group mm-hmm. films. And you're standing there like on a on a, a plank, and you're watching Peter Bogdanovich go off plank into the water. You're watching Bruce Beresford go off. You're watching David Lynch with Blue Velvet go yeah. off. I mean, it was uh, William Friedkin had a movie, all these guys, you know, it was like, they just couldn't sell these movies, they couldn't do anything. And I was like, you know, the last one, other than some movie that Dino absolutely hated and he wouldn't release called Bill and Ted's excellent adventure.
2: So <laughs> perfect timing. That
1: would he put aside and uh, you know, that was a later picked up by somebody else and, you know, we did not talk about, you know, that. Um, but it, it's, it, it was one of those things where I was just, I, I put everything that I felt Capra influenced me with plus my own childhood fascination, you know, with angels and this whole idea of trying to, a winged creature you know on the screen like that but by the time i finally you know got it made et had come and gone splash had come and gone you know all these other movies that had absolutely you know no influence on what i did because i had already written this stuff but critically you know it it was immediately you know here comes another fantasy figure woman you know first we had mermaid then we had you know a, a mannequin and now we got a doll and now we got an angel, you know? And so it was very painful to have that, you know, come at you after you, you know, worked so hard for so many years trying to get it off the ground. But, you know, that was the result. But then again, I mean, now, uh, what is it today? The, the, the third, uh, yeah, the 11th of this month coming up, um, uh, they're releasing the, um, you know, the Blu-ray, uh, version of Kino Lorber, who is a you know, wonderful company, is releasing that with, you know, my commentary, with stuff you haven't seen, behind the scenes stuff, oh. you know, all kinds of things, because, you know, there's been a kind of a cult following of that movie for years, which uh, is that sort of, you know, cool thing that can happen to some movie that didn't necessarily make it in the theaters, but, you know, was discovered, you know, on, on video. Well,
2: wow, we'll definitely have to make sure we mention on our, on our socials that that's coming out God, really, like in a week. What are the chances of that, I guess? But, you know, you mentioned, you talk about likability and Frank Capra, and I feel like these days, when people say something is Capra-esque, they're using it as a negative. But I think that if if something is Capra-esque to me, it means that the filmmakers, they they pulled it off. They pulled it off successfully. They pulled off the emotional ending, the uplifting ending successfully. They didn't make it modeling or, or cheesy or anything like that. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. If you pull it off, I don't need every movie to have some dark, grotesque ending. You know, sometimes I want to be uplifted and if you earn it, you earn it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, he, he got that, <laughs> that label right from the gate. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've ever seen Sullivan's travels. Um, the movie Preston Sturgis did. Mm. And there's a point where the, the lead actor or the, yeah, the, uh, i on his name now. Um, who played the lead and there was the lead in that? But he's a director and he's arguing about. You know, he's tired of making these stupid little comedies and stuff that's made the studio so successful. He wants to have something that is hard, has a message, and the, the head of the studio says, so "Like Capra," and he goes, "Yeah, I like Capra. What's wrong with Capra?"
0: You know. <laughs> so even then,
1: you know, they were they were slamming him. Um, but yeah, through his through most of his career, um, you know, he had a formula that he loved and you know, to me always made work because he always hired people like Jimmy Stewart and Gary Cooper and people that you sort of just loved as a personage. And, you know, they took you on this journey, which is, you know, to me, really, really important. Obviously Tom Hanks and Splash, you know, had that same element. You really, you know, cared about him. And when I was casting for date with an angel, the first person I brought in was Jim Carrey and. I saw Jim on some show, and I saw him in a movie, um,
2: something on, you know, once bitten or something, something like that.
1: I yeah, I, I did. I see that. I, I can't remember because I, I think most of the stuff was things that he had done on TV, and he did a TV movie too. And I saw you know his you know his comic performance too, so I knew he could do comedy. And I also saw that he could do you know straight drama as well from this.
0: TV oh, movie. the one where he uh, he put. He, he played an alcoholic. Oh, that like,
2: was doing time on Maple Drive. I think that was a few years later. Okay. Yeah, I think that was in the early 90s that one came out.
0: It was around that time. Yeah. It's a it's a good one. He was I mean cuz everybody knew him for him in living color and it was surpri- or I don't even know. That might have been pre-in living color. I don't know.
1: Now maybe it was something else that I saw that that he that he had done. But there's something where he was toned down. He wasn't doing just all the wild crazy stuff. And I was using that as an example because you know, first thing out of Dino's mouth is, yeah, he's a funny kid, but he's a funny looking kid. We need the <laughs> honest <to> little man. <laughs> you know so, you know, Jim called me after the audition, go, you know, how did I do? How did I do? I said, I thought you were great, but you know, Dino is, you know, you know, you're the first one I brought in. So let let's see, you know, how we do. You know, and Jim goes, I got to do this part. I got to, I got to do, I mean, I'll, 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 you know, I'll give you a blow job. I'll do anything. I'll just, you know, <laughs> you got to do this. I said, no, no, that's not necessary. That's not
0: <laughs> And then later he
1: called me back and he goes, you know, uh, I was just kidding about the blow job. I hope you don't think I was serious about that. <laughs> <I said>, no, <laughs> God, you know, I'm kidding. Right. That is but, a great story. Know, here we are, you know, all these years back and you think, you know, you could have had, you know, one of Jim Carrey's first movies, uh, you know, it, 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 you know, and it's like, Nope. Dino just didn't want him, you know, and he, you know, he was talking Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise was, I don't know how many millions of dollars to get him. And I yeah. knew that wasn't yep. going to happen, but you would, would pay it, you know, to have a big star, he was willing to do it. So, you know, we, we went through, you know, so many people trying to find that Gary Cooper, Jimmy Stewart, you know, good looking, but to be funny type guy. And, you know, Much to my shock, it was Michael Knight when I met him, because I certainly never saw him on any of the soap operas or whatever. But he just came in to me and was charming and witty and fun and, you know, loved his face and, you know, thought he could be great. And so, I mean, that that, again, was trying to find somebody that seemed like, you know, the guy everybody likes. And his three friends are all based on guys that were in my band back in the 60s, George Rex and Don, those are their names, and so I tried to make this whole thing that really has a lot of, you know, my own autobiography in there, but in a fantasy way, Uh, so it it was, you know, grounded in something I kind of felt and I knew, and then, of course, all the Capra, you know, type touches.
0: Now, you talk about finding the right guy for the part. Uh, Before you were uh, doing the writing and directing, really, uh, you did some acting. How did they find you to be the right guy to be the mutated bear in John Frankenheimer's prophecy?
1: <laughs> well, there's where the mime actually turned into uh, a, a paycheck, because, I, I mean, everybody, every all my friends, my parents, you know, everybody in my life going, you're going to Paris, you're leaving the band, you're leaving your girlfriend, you're going to some country where you don't speak one word, you know, of the language by yourself at 19, you know, you know, what's going on? You on drugs? And I said, you know, I was earlier, but I'm not now. uh, So, no, this is, I don't know. You know what? I can't answer that question. I don't know why I want to do this. I just feel it would help my performing on stage, you know, as a rock and roller. But when I got there, I found out that I actually you know, had a a gift for writing comedy and creating comedy sketches and things. And Marceau just loved that, um, you know, that aspect of my sketch writing and things. So when I came to L.A. with the, you know, back to L.A. with all these ideas that I was going to be this, you know, next, you know, Chapman, you know, that I'd write, direct, and star I don't short comedies and things. Nobody was interested in that. But they were interested in, you know, the fact that I had physical training and, you know, I got a call from a casting agent and it's like, we're doing this Woody Allen movie called Sleeper. And uh, Woody, you know, had heard that Stanley Kubrick used mines for the monkeys in 2001. So he thought maybe we should look for a mine, you know, to, to be, you know, in the robot suit. And um, I said, yeah, sure. He said, You know, would you come and meet with Woody? And I'll go with, i go, I because I was a huge fan, you know, at that time, he, yeah. you know, just a the course, three films: um, uh, "Take the Money and Run," and "Bananas," and uh, "Tiger Lily." I, I think "Tiger Lily." What's be, a "Tiger you
2: know, Lily"? Yeah.
1: yeah. um so I, you know, I I go over to the what would the old desi blue studios in Culver City, and you know, in a room with with Woody, and it was just amazing how insecure and shy, painfully shy he was. He could barely make eye contact. You know, he kept kind of pushing these pool balls around on a pool table as he's, you know, talking to me about what he's trying to do. And then every, I don't know, every other sentence he go, I, I'm, you know, I'm kidding myself. I can't, you know, I can't be chaplain. I can't do this kind of stuff. I, you know, it's all verbal that I do, and, you know, because he really wanted to do a physical comedy piece. So he said, well, what, you know, what do you do? Uh, you, you, you can do something like this. And then I showed him like these robot rules. He goes, see, I can't do that i can you know it's not going to be funny you know so then we started talking about how to make it funny which was instead of making the moves smooth make a more staccata you know so that they kind of bounced and you know did the you know he could do a funny walk and you know make the expressions and things so we kind of worked that out and then i ended up hiring all these people that i knew who were mines you know for all the other robots you know in the in the piece well, then I'm on the map as, you know, a guy that, you know, gets in suits. So, you know, that <laughs> led to uh, later on the Jabberwocky and Alice in Wonderland, it, you know, a bunch of other robot things for TV shows and stuff. And of course, prophecy, um, you know, I met with uh, 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 John, uh, John Frankenheimer and uh, the producer and you know, talk this whole thing out, and they showed me sketches of what this thing was going to look like, and it was like laughable. It literally <laughs> was like, a, 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 you know, it had wings, it had, you know, like shark kind of teeth, it had like, you know, part cat, part dog, part rhino, part, I mean, it, you know, and the idea was is that the, you know, in the Indian culture, you know, they talk about, you know, Kadak kapad you know, who is going to come and take back the land and he's a part of every animal. So they literally tried to create a creature (laughs) Berman was going to make. That was literally, you know, every kind (laughs) of animal that you could put into it. And I mean, you know, might have made for a great, you know, (laughs) God versus Godzilla movie, you know, know, at some point, but, um, you know, they they abandoned that and decided that it was going to be a mutated bear. Um, and <laughs> I always really, questioned <laughs> you know, the look of it. Uh, you know, we always called it the Pizza Bear because it looked like it was, you know, hit by a huge <laughs> pizza on the side. Um, and it was three months of, um, you know, very very rigorous training because that, you know, the hydraulics in the head and all that were like all together is like 150 pounds. That's kind of resting on your head, and you know. I don't have very big shoulders, so it was a, a real strain, you know, to make it make it work. But, um, you know, I got to, you know, be on a huge Paramount feature with, you know, the same John Frankenheimer and, uh, you know, watch how you can spend $40,000 a day and not get one shot. <laughs> and um, it was just such a slow process, uh, you know, with, with those kinds of movies. But the wonderful thing that came out of it is the the other bear that was in the big, tall costume was Kevin Peter Hall. Oh, yes. And this was like at the very beginning of his career. And he was just, you know, incredibly lovely guy um, to hang out with and and things. And, you know, he he just, you know, I, I made a short film that I put him in um about you know him meeting a falling in love with a girl that's like five foot and he's like you know
0: seven
1: seven yeah kevin peter hall was
0: what like nine feet tall yeah he was a big guy
1: yeah yeah he was but i mean just you know one of the nicest guys that was just heartbreaking when he when he passed away but um yeah that's so it was like the mind training that led me into all these things where if they needed you know somebody to pour um you know, uh, wine into a glass, like Orson Welles spoke, you know, I was a guy, you know, somebody to dip the donut in the coffee, I was a guy, you know, the, you know, anything that required anything that was sort of like physical, I was able to, you know, do and get paid for. And then I would hire myself out on these shows where I would play, you know, a mechanical person like a waiter at a party or somebody out in front of a business that, you, you know, looks like they're not going to move and then suddenly they move. And I just kept racking up as much as I could, um, you know, from that so that I, you know, I could then kind of write and feel like I didn't feel like, I, you know, I had to take a regular job, you know, I was at least doing something that had something to do with, you know, show business.
2: Well, I mean, speaking of robots and mastering the robotic move via mime, there's another movie we have to talk about before we move on to Jason Lives. And it's a movie I somehow, I think I saw bits and pieces of as a kid. But it's kind of undergoing this little mini renaissance because of Disney Plus. No free plugs, but because of Disney Plus. And that is The Black Hole. Um, And so it's funny because the movie starts and I knew, I knew you were in it. So I was looking, I was like, wait, I know Anthony Perkins is in this, Robert Forster's in this, you know, Ernest Borgnine's in this. So, I'm looking for you the entire movie. You were, were you the head, Captain, something, was the head bad robot or something like that? What was your exact role in that?
1: Yeah, well, here's a story on that. I got hired to uh, basically direct the humanoids and the sentry robots. Okay. So, you know, to to get them to come up with some look that was menacing. So, we sort of did like a robotic Nazi step way that they that they moved and then the humanoids just moved sort of like they floated you know had long things so that they would move their feet very slowly so there was like a float to their movements and you know that that was basically the gig um and everybody on that show was like you know this is going to bomb this is going to be the worst thing you know there was such a negative vibe and gary nelson the director was you know mr positive he was you know very sure that this was going to work and um the uh, Ron, um, what's his name? The, the Walt well, Disney's son-in-law that took over. Ron, blanking. Mm. But anyway, he he didn't understand the movie or or really know. He was trusting that since they turned down Star Wars, this would be their chance to make mm. a big, <laughs> big, sure. big saga. But you know, even the score, which a lot of people have come to love, you know, was just this plotting, da 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 da. I mean, there was nothing uplifting about it at all. And if you know, in the process of doing the movie, Gary came to me one day and he said, "We have this idea to do like a shooting gallery sequence uh, with you know who's like the you know the hot." Hot shot robot um, of the centuries and That's right. going to be you know black as opposed to red, and he's going to go up against the the two little robots you know in in the shooting match. So they basically wrote that for me to do, created the suit with you know more kind of rubbery arms so I could spin my arms and do things you know with it. And then you know the next thing I know is there's all these superstars' name, and then at the bottom of the list is you know Tommy McLaughlin, you know Captain <laughs> Star. So you know. <laughs> It was like shocking, but like you say, I mean, as the years have gone on, a lot of kids saw it very, very young and you know, uh, the, the, the big nasty robot what's it called max or something. I can't remember. Max um, you know, no. that, yeah, that scared them and certain things, you know, got to them just like the Jabberwocky, you're the Jabberwocky. I couldn't sleep for days. That's you know, So it's like these things that you end up doing, you know, during the 70s and 80s and, and, you know, you know, as an actor that were just paying the bills kind of jobs have become sort of iconic things in a lot of people's lives because they saw it, you know, at a very young age. So, yeah, they've, they've been talking for years about remaking Black Hole and, you know, make, you know, obviously sprucing it up for a modern audience.
2: Well, it's amazing to think that you can look back. You can look back and say that you technically worked opposite Slim Pickens and Roddy McDowell. I mean, that's the fact. If you watch that movie, <laughs> they may be two little plump robots, but it's just a fact. So it's pretty incredible.
1: Now, um, now, um, yeah, yeah I, can I, mean, al- I can also I can also say that uh, Anthony Perkins kind of looked me up and down like, mm-hmm, and I was <laughs> going, "Whoa, oh, <laughs> yeah, he's not gay, is he?" Oh yeah, I guess he is. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, that was a big surprise. But it was it was strange, because you know, that, you know, that relationship we all have with, uh, you know, with him from psycho is is like, Whoa, what a creep. So you know, he, he, he really embodied that 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 strange kind of aloof. But you know, when he looked at you, it was yeah, it was kind of unsettling. Oh, <laughs>
0: Now, both yeah, you're a rock and roller, Tom, as we talked about. Yeah, oh, yeah. my band backed you up here in Chicago uh, at the music at the mm-hmm. Massacre, uh, which was a oh, great yeah. time. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Now, both Jason Lives and Date with an Angel have some memorable rock and roll Neil drops, particularly Date with an Angel, uh, Icicle Works, Understanding Jane, one of my favorites that my band used yeah. to cover. Uh, how do you go about yeah. choosing music for your films? And then sidebar. There's an Alice Cooper demo for Man Behind the Mask that uses the song Trick Bag with different lyrics, with the Man Behind the Mask lyrics. Did you have any input on which song was going to be used
1: in Jason Lives? No. Uh, well, let me put it this way. I, I filled the temporary soundtrack with all the kinds of rock and roll that I thought were appropriate songs, knowing full well that they were not going to pay for the rights for these songs. (laughs) But I wanted to put, you know, that vibe in there. And, you know, one of them was one of Alice's songs, which I can't even remember what it was at this point, because it was just like in one short little area. Yeah. And Frank Mancuso Jr., who was executive, you know, when he saw the cut, you know, he came to me and he said, What do you think about Alice Cooper, you know, doing a song? For, this, for the movie. And I said, you kidding me? He says, no, they're record company. They're feeling like, you know, th- th- things are not going as swimmingly as they should for him right now. And he needs, you know, new exposure and he loves, you know, horror stuff, obviously. And he loves the Friday genre. And I said, that would be so weird because, you know, I knew him when he was Vincent in the sixties and he had a group called the Naz and we played on yeah. the same stages together and hung out at Frank Zappa's house. And, you know, be, you know, long before Alice was even an idea. Um, so I said, that that would be cool. And, and uh, you yeah, know, I'd love to, you know, meet him. And God, if they do a music video, I'd love to do that. That would be so great. And he goes, oh, let me see what we can do. So, you know, comes back, you know, Alice is going to do this song. Great. And I said, any chance of getting any other songs? He goes, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, pick and choose what you want. You know, so we did Hard Rock Summer and uh, Teenage Frankenstein. And uh, what about the music video? No, nah, record labels has a music video director that they you know, that they use and that, that's not going to work. I was like, oh, shit. Uh, but can I at least meet him? Oh, sure. Yeah. No. So here we are, 34 years later, and I have yet to, to be face-to-face with Alice Cooper. <laughs> oh,
2: really? And,
1: you know, yeah. I mean, it just has not happened. It's like he was going to do a convention that I was doing, and then you know, he ended up that, I guess his tour changed dates or something. So he ended up canceling on that. And it's just been all these different things that, that, you know, just haven't quite happened. And so, you know, I still, you know, want to thank him, you know, personally, you know, for, for the song and stuff. And, you know, he's talked about me. I, of course, I always talk about him and, um, you know, the big uh, box set of the Friday stuff that the shop factory is coming out with, you know, there's interviews with, with us and, I think they're going to have that, that song that, you know, that was first done, uh, like you're talking about the demo. I think they're yeah, going the to put demo. That on there too. Yeah. For, so, um, yeah, I mean, that, that kind of is how that happened. All the other rock and roll stuff in, in, you know, my movies was always a question of, can they afford this or that song? And in the case of, um, you know, like,
0: it has a lot of great needle drops in it, the cars and a bunch of other great and um Steve Winwood, which is, seems like it would be an expensive
1: get, yeah. I, I mean that was one of those ones where it's like, okay, it's going to be you know fifteen thousand for Angel baby because I wanted Angel baby for sure. <laughs> um, and and then, you know, and then uh, Becky Mancuso, Frank Mancuso's wife, was a you know music supervisor. And she would be the one that had all the connections with the record companies and stuff and to try to you know do the deals and things. And you know, she she was the one that was suggesting things to me and she brought up Stevie Winwood and I went, Boy, that's a huge hit. And yeah. She goes, Well, let's see what we can do. You know, so she comes back and she says, They said they would possibly consider it, but uh, Steve's got to look at the movie first. And I was going, Oh shit, okay. So, you know, <laughs> we sent him the scene that the you know song was gonna be in. And he came back and said, yeah, that's fine. And they ended up, you know, paying the same 15,000 for that that we paid for Angel Baby because he was cool about it. And, you know, that, and she was great, obviously, at negotiation. And then, you know, I works, you know, she introduced me to because I, you know, never heard of them before. So there was a lot of stuff that was, you know, her bringing me stuff. Then I'm going, no, I'm not that right. No, that, oh, wait a minute. That's great. Who's that? So that was really helpful. And then in the later movies, the cable movies and things that I was doing, you know, if I had the right budget, if we're doing something for USA, you know, I could I could go and you know get songs that you know would be very expensive, but they would be owned either by Sony or Universal or whatever, then you know, part of their library, so we could get them you know less expensively.
2: Well, I, I, we should clear this up finally because for a couple months this has been bothering us, but I think you finally verified that Joseph Zito, who directed the final chapter, did not direct the He's Back, the man behind the mask video, correct? It was another person?
1: Yeah, that was a different, yeah.
2: Finally. (laughs) The internet is so unreliable. We we were going back and forth because some people, a bunch of sites were saying that Joseph Zito also directed that video, but some were saying uh, Jeffrey Uh, Jeffrey Abelson Abelson directed directed the video. So I'm happy we have a a face-to-face person on this podcast that can verify that Joseph Zito Zito did did not direct the video. video. Finally. Finally,
1: okay. okay. That's well, great. I wasn't
2: on the set. Uh, oh no, maybe maybe this is a ghost direction situation where he did direct it. Or <laughs> uh,
1: but I d- think again on this on this ultimate you know fan you know pleasing uh, uh, box set that 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 shout factory is coming up. I think they actually you know interviewed him the the, the director and I, they, because I heard his name um, and they also I think have the you know the full performance that alice did of the song you know rather than cutting to the you know the shots from the movie and stuff or the teenagers oh, cool. in that so i you know I, I don't quote me i might be misreading the thing but it sounded like that's what they were going to put in just you know to get what what he was thinking when he was making the music video well
2: i know that i think i speak for all of us that even though we're not going to be getting a new friday the 13th movie this year again we are going to definitely enjoy this this massive box that's coming out because they've announced so many extras, but they say that there's even there are even more extras that they haven't talked about. So definitely looking into diving into that. Can't wait. But, you know... I, th- I, I,
1: I just, just want to say one more thing on that. Sure. I You know, I heard about it, you know, when everybody else did, and it was like, wait a minute, you know, shit, I would have loved a part of that. You know, <laughs> they got CJ to do voice, so it's something that's like, you know people say, well, dude, you've done three commentaries now, you know, all of them are going to be in there, you know, all the other in- interviews and things. And I go, yeah, but you know, the one thing that didn't get in that it's on YouTube is this thing I did uh, called the uh, uh, Legends Never Die, uh, Hollywood Forever. And it was, you know, how I wrote Friday the 13th in the cemetery, in the Hollywood cemetery. And I said, I would love to get that included. But obviously with all the publicity for this movie, it's, it's, you know, the boat has sailed. That's it. And I called around and, you know, spoke to Peter Brackey, you know, who did the uh, Crystal Lake memories book and, and the movie. Um, and he said, no, I, they're still adding things. So here, you know, call the producers. And, you know, they were ecstatic about getting it. And then they said, you know, could we you know do an interview with you too? And I said, sure. Yeah. See if we can find something I haven't talked about. And I said, well, I want to do it at the mausoleum where my crypt is, so that can tie in with the black and white thing, and you know, kind of give a whole backstory on that. And then, you know, they brought up, uh, you know, my new movie, the new script that you know that I've written, and um, you know, said, is there is there anything from that? You know, do you have like you know, concept drawing or whatever? And I said, mm, yeah, I actually have, you know, this young artist that did a lot of things for me, but. I've been really careful about not saying too much about what I'm doing, just for the fear that with all these fan-based films that are getting made, somebody's going to take you know one of these ideas and and you know run with it before I you know the the lawsuit ends. <laughs> and then and then I thought you know, on this thing since this is like this ultimate set, I really should you know give away a couple of things visually so that you know we could you know see it so. Literally yesterday, I went through all the concept art and kind of, you know, picked and choose things that I think people will have a great reaction to in terms of how Jason is going to look and what I'm, you know, thinking. And then, you know, a couple sequences, not the full sequence, but, you know, a flavor of it. And of course, you know, him in the snow and all those, you know, aspects that are going to make this one, you know, different from the other ones, but it still, you know, occurs, next to crystal lake and crystal lake is you know frozen at this time Have, and, have you uh, seen you know, I, that's gonna, no go ahead and be seen in, in this documentary
0: very cool um have you seen never hike alone the friday the 13th fan film uh people really seem to dig that one
1: yeah i mean I, I well i had this wonderful situation happen where uh vincent uh, who made the film got a hold of me and he said you know we're having a cast and crew screening you know we would uh, love you to come and when i you know showed up at the theater all these people were like have you seen this yet i said no He'd go oh you're going to be surprised <laughs> i go oh, okay <laughs> and of course there was so many you know little nods and things to to Jason Lives but the you know the big thing was he got Tom Matthews you know in there which yeah. i was like holy shit that's amazing. So then we kind of became friends and, you know, we're talking and stuff. And then one day we were having lunch together and I started, you know, talking about, you know, the script I was doing with the, you know, the snow thing. And he, and he goes, uh, I'm doing the same thing. I said, you are, he goes, yeah, it's going to never hike in the snow. <laughs> <I> go, <laughs> okay. You know, cause I, I knew he wasn't ripping me off. We just both had the same idea. Um, and so and and i knew that you know mine is just way too expensive to do as an independent film um but you know he's got the wherewithal and the fundraising that he could do you know his version of this which i guess is just a short but he ended up getting you know vinnie who was the you know, the uh, detective who's now the sheriff uh in his and tom matthews in it as well so it, it should be very cool you know it just was my frustration is that you know i i, I this thing didn't get made you know first so the, right. the first time people were seeing it in the snow but it's you know it, it's a very select audience that are the hardcore fans that you know seek these things out and obviously what i'm trying to do is you know a mainstream horror movie that if you never saw friday the 13th you would still um you know get it and and enjoy it and it would scare you and you know a few laughs like jason jason lives and if you know you a fan of Jason Liz, you would see, you know, I do some some things that sort of continue on because it have this The script I wrote takes place in uh, 1999, literally 13 years from the time I put him down into the lake. Um, so I have this sort of cyclical thing that that occurs um, when he, when he comes back. So uh, you know, it it will be. Um, sort of a lot of stuff for the fans, but also, as I said, trying to just make a really kick-ass horror movie again.
2: Well, that would be an incredible thing. Again, I mean, how familiar are you with this current lawsuit that's going on between Victor Miller and and Sean S Cunningham? And, you know, I don't want to predict how you feel about being a writer director yourself, but I mean, do you stand on a certain side with that?
1: Well, here again, you know, I'm, I'm, friends with both of these guys, not close friends, but certainly, you know, we, you know, I, I, in fact, I just, you know, talked to Victor like six months ago on kind of a a call at some convention that he called in on and then they put me on. So we kind of chatted back and forth and, you know, I I connect with, you know, Sean on Facebook from time to time. And it's really hard to take a side on this. Um, And when it gets down to it, when fans and everybody are going, you know how much fucking money do you need i mean you know <laughs> obviously sean is, is holding all the you know money cards and victor you know feels like you know he should be getting paid for all these years of this movie because the after 30, 35 years the rights to friday the 13th the script you know reverted back to him so you know i don't know how big of a piece of the pie he wants and basically you know, he won, you know, the, the the verdict came in and it was, you know, Victor gets to, you know, have the title Friday the thirteenth and he can remake, you know, the original, but he cannot have Jason. Sean got Jason and Sean can make a Jason movie with the Friday the thirteenth title in Europe. Um oh, but wow. not here.
2: Oh, what a nightmare. <laughs>
1: so um so that had happened. And then was it during that period that, you know, I started writing my script and it wasn't for any other reason. And I, I finally got enough great ideas in my mind to put together something that I felt was, was fresh and was, you know, a different take on, on the series, yet holding to the old school, you know, you know, structure and also, um, making it period because somehow you know when these things happen modern day it doesn't have the same kind of classic flavor and i felt like the end of the 90s you're, people are still wearing shit from the 80s and, <laughs> you know, and the 90s are sort of innocuous but you know but i can still wardrobe people you know in that and talk about how their parents are all freaked out at the moment because it's going to turn 2000 and they're all afraid that the end of the world's going to come and all that which really has nothing to do with the plot but it was just A very weird period, nineteen ninety nine. Indeed, because of that,
2: I think the the fact alone that people didn't really have cell phones would also add to the tension in
1: nineteen ninety nine. Exactly. Yeah. No. But you know, there's one character which I haven't told this to anybody that actually you know is very wealthy, and she comes and she has like five cell phones. (laughs) you know, the right period and stuff that they had, but of course, none of them work up there, you know, so Perfect. it's like, yeah. and, and, and she's like, well, you know, one of the first victims. So, you know, that, that whole, that all goes away very quick.
0: That's a good. Bet. But That's um a
1: good the getting back to the lawsuit. um, So I write this thing and then I hear Sean has appealed, you know, the verdict and, you know, well, what does that mean? And it's like, I don't know, there's going to be another date and, suddenly bang, it becomes formal. Um, And, you know, as soon as that happened, um, you know, my script could not go to New Line um, or Warner Brothers who have the rights. You know, my lawyer was basically it's like nobody wants to even look at it because what's the point? This lawsuit has gone on for nine years. It could go on for another nine years. And when I did some sort of diving around with it and stuff, kind of what I came back with, um, which nobody told me directly, but when you hear the stories about the rivalry between the two of them over this, it's more ego driven than money driven. Um, no, that, that doesn't surprise like,
0: me at all. <laughs>
1: you know, Sean wants the whole pie and doesn't really I think want Victor to have, you know, anything or he gets something, but he certainly isn't going to participate in all the, you know, all the monies from all these years, um, I think. I mean, again, that's that sort of kind of makes sense. Just, you know, why don't they settle on something? I mean, the, the, both these guys are approaching 80. And, you know, what are you going to, you know, how much richer can you be on this? But, you know, it, I think, again, it's, you know, who who is going to actually have the rights? Who's going to, you know, yeah, for all of time, their children and their grandchildren, all the rest of that. But, yeah, I mean, it's, there was supposed to be an answer this summer. Um, Larry Zerner, you know, who was the, you know, the lawyer that kind of been on top of this. One.
2: Yeah, we, we actually had him on a couple months ago talking about the whole situation, and he, he laid it out, too. And, uh, yeah, he said the same thing, and we were kind of like, well, if there's other things going on right now that might delay that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. hopefully we'll get, well, hopefully we'll still get an answer somewhat soon.
0: Now, uh, now, t- uh t- You
1: can't fight a traffic ticket
0: now. <laughs> you uh, you yeah, uh
1: everything is shit.
0: Yeah, but you've met... You've mentioned in the past, now correct me if I'm wrong, I believe you mentioned like, while you were being courted to do Jason Lives, you were afraid that if you did it you would end up having to take it off your resume because the slashers weren't your thing. But now it's arguably one of your most popular films. Uh, do you, why do you think the attitude critically has changed towards slashers in recent years? Do you think it's nostalgia or do you think it's something deeper or something other than that?
1: Well, it's a combination of things. I mean, I, when I was offered it, because um, I I was, you know, I'd heard about April Fool's Day and I thought, oh, that sounds like that could be, you know, funny as well as scary. Absolutely. But they had already, you know, cast the director for that. But then, you know, same producer, Frank, you know, asked my agent, uh, would he be interested in doing a Friday the 13th? And I was like, Ugh, I mean, this would be the sixth one. What are you going to do different? I mean, it's like, you know, he you, you killed him. He was done in four. And then they have him come back. But it's not really him. And, you know, and people were upset about that. And they normally, you know, waited two years between each of the movies. Now they were going to greenlight this, you know, within a year, trying to get the audience back that was pissed off at part five. And, you know, I, I have, you know, an agent kept going, are you crazy? I mean, this is a, you know, this is a feature film going to be in, you know, theaters and the top of August of this year, I mean, it, it's like it's, you, why would you not want to do it? And I go, I just, you know, I, I like the gothic horror thing and I, you know, I want things to be comic and stuff. I said, well, tell them that. So I, you know, I met with Frank and he basically had one marching order, you know, bring back Jason. I don't care what else you do. <laughs> I said, but I, I, I want to put some kind of satire of the genre in there. And he goes, well, oh, let's see what you come up with. Um, and he, you know, He loved everything except Jason's father uh, at the end of the movie and Mm. said, you know, if we put Jason's father at the end of this movie, the fans are going to think, oh, is the next movie going to be, you know, Friday the 13th, Jason's dad. Uh, He's (laughs) like, no, you know, we can't do that. It's got to end with Jason. We've got to feel like, okay, he's back and you know, it's not over. And I went, yeah, that makes sense. Okay. I got it. So um, as, you know, as I I was doing the film, I kept thinking, the fans are going to hate this, they're going to be so pissed, you know, (laughs) about the the humor aspects of it. And we're not taking certain things serious. But I was at the same time trying to make it scary. um, And and try to see if I could balance that, that that line. Um, And when the the reviews came out, and the critics actually liked it, I mean, there was obviously the, the usual, you know, tear it down, like, and Ebert and it's like they you know they tore the whole film apart and they go, you know what? we didn't even see this movie. <laughs> but you know what you're gonna get. This is what it's going to be. We've always said that and stuff. But a lot of them, you know the LA Times and the New York Times and the Variety reporter, everybody really appreciated, that I had a you know a sense of humor about it and would bring up the James Bond thing, would bring up the caretaker looking right into the camera and saying some folks have a strange idea of entertainment, you know all that stuff t- totally diffused you know the normal hatred for it, which surprised the hell out of me. And then as years have gone on, you know it's become this favorite one of of, of you know all of them, and I don't think it's so much that it's the best one, you know, from my standpoint. Joe Zito's part four is the best of the Fridays for me and the first one, because that was, you know, I thought just a really good, you know, horror thriller. Um, And the thing I come to kind of learn is that, you know, the people I talked to, this was the first one they saw. They were at a certain age and were able to see it. And even if their parents were fans, they sort of were like, well, yeah, this, this, this one's scary, but you know, I, I don't think it's, you know, too over the top, you know, it, it was, you can watch this. So it, you know, it kind of became this one that was like really, you know, loved from that standpoint. And a lot of people loved the fact that I tried to really do a story with it that had an arc of what, you know, Tommy's character was trying to do, and what Jason was trying to do with Tommy. And then the killings sort of helped, you know, happened along the way. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, I I would have never thought you know 34 years ago we'd be having this conversation (laughs) and be talking about this thing and there's a (laughs) box set coming out for 150 bucks and everybody's already bought every kind of Friday the 13th version that's out there, I mean it's amazing. I mean this doesn't happen with any of the other you know I haven't heard of any James Bond franchise. I mean uh, conventions or diehard conventions or some of the other you know movies that were like that. Um, You know had one after another, but, you know, the Fridays, the Halloween, obviously, you know, the horror fans are just, you know, very loyal and you know ultimately wonderful people. You know, you meet all these people and it's like, these they, they are so excited, you know, by, by the films and they all like mean something to them because they, you know, like songs, they happen at certain points of their life that they, you know, have cozy memories about. So I, well, went, I, know, would I, e- I would know, even suspect that the... Bracket, well, you
2: know. Yeah, that would go another generation. But I think this the newest or post-slasher generation that was raised on you know the Scream franchise, which are obviously much more humorous, I think they were probably um, easier to adapt to when it came to Jason Lives, because they were already kind of used to that yeah. humor being in horror. So I think that was a huge driving force mm-hmm. for the 90s kids on... Uh,
0: and Tommy, you were offered scream. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. It was called scary movie at that time, Kevin Williamson. And they sent me the script. Um, and I, you know, I was kind of in a place where I, you know, I was really trying to figure out what would be, you know, the best next movie. And I read this and right from the first scene, I was going, I've already kind of made this, you know, you know, a, a satire and the horror movie and things. And I mean, it was good. Um, But I sort of said, you know, what else you got? And put it aside. So then my agent sent me all these other scripts. And I, you know, after about, I don't know, three months or something, I went, "Um, you know what, what's going on with Scary Movie? And he goes, ah, well, a little too late. Last week, you know, Wes Craven said yes. And I went, oh, okay, well, he's going to make a great movie, whatever. And, of course, (laughs) you know, one of those really regret it, um, you know, things. But, I mean, I I didn't do it for just – the reasons at that time, I thought, you know, it was going to look like I'm just kind of doing a different version of what I did. But the best thing was years later, um, I meet uh, Kevin Williamson at a meeting for some series that he was doing and we're chatting and things. And then he said, you know, I got to tell you something. Your Friday the 13th had a big impact on me. And, you know, a lot of you know reasons that I did screen the way I did it was, you know, because of the feeling of what you had in there. And I went, thank wow. you. <laughs> I said, but you
2: want to know how stupid I am? I turned it down. <laughs> yeah, you <know>, I, mean, <laughs> I, I, I but, believe it uh, 100%. I believe it. I mean, well, going back to Jason Lives, though, when, it, when it comes to the tonal shift from, we talked about this in our last episode, the unlikable characters to the likable characters of Jason Lives. But you still adhere to the continuity with the return of Tommy Jarvis um, when you were writing the script, at what point did you decide, you know what we have to, even though I was told I only had to bring back Jason, we should probably also bring back Tommy.
1: Yeah, I, well, that was kind of a discussion too with with uh, with Frank and because I, I I said you know i I asked if I could see all the movies um, so I could see them in. in it. You know chronological order, and at least get a sense of what the legend and the mythology is, and what characters. And, you know, make sure I'm not copying something. that, You know, unintentionally, I didn't know. So, I've, they set up a screening room with Paramount, and I sat there and watched. You know, all five back to back, and you know, it was a little bit overwhelming. But I did walk away going, okay, you know, there is there's something about having a through line you know, that I think is great for fans. And I'm basically going to take the attitude that at part four, you know, it ended. And part five, I'm, I'm not going to deal with other than because of the things that happened to the, you know, uh, you know, the little Tommy, that event, you know, he ended up going into some asylum. And when he, you know, has gotten out, released with the Haas character in, in my six, it's like, they're just talking about the institution. So if you saw part five, you go, oh, okay, that's the one, you know, that he obviously was in, or if you didn't see part five, it's like, oh, okay. It went from four to six. It's like, okay, this was years later, he's grown up and you know, he's been there a long time <laughs> And you know, <laughs> this is what happened. And people always are, get so fucked up on the timeline, you know, on these movies, <laughs> because oh, there's yeah. never really any Sitting down, saying this is the rule. It jumps all over the place. I mean, somebody explained to me how he goes from this little kid coming out of the lake to suddenly he's you know you know Eugene Kings in the in part two, and he's this huge guy with a you know bag over his head. It's, you know
2: how many? It's years funny you mention that? that, Tom, because I, I, every every episode we spend at least fifteen minutes trying to figure out what year the the specific movie <laughs> takes place. So I think yeah. we dis- we determined that at the end of the 5th or by the beginning of the 5th movie of the year is 1989. That's that's where we are mm-hmm. in our in our own minds where we've kind of thought it out. 1989. So I actually I, we have you here. In your estimation, how many if you had to put a number on it, how many years have passed between the ending of a new beginning and the beginning of of Jason Lives? If you had to put a number on it,
1: if I had to, if I had to put a thing on it, well, I, I have to look at the fact that, you know, John Shepard um, to me and um, um, uh, Tom Matthews are basically contemporaries in terms of age and look. Sure. Um, obviously, you couldn't get uh, John Shepard because for either he wanted more money or he became religious. I mean, there's so many different you know rumors about why he didn't even want to do it. Um, so we had to go looking for a new, you know, Tommy Jarvis. Uh but I, I looked it sort of like maybe this is a year later. I don't mm. know. I mean, I, I just think, you know, you really kind of jerk the audience's chain with him putting the mask on at the end and then you're going, okay, you're so fucked up he's gonna be Jason. Um and people didn't want that. So that's why I kind of, you know, kind of took it out of the mix not that it doesn't work as a, as a film. I mean, I, I sat there one night with Quentin Tarantino and he goes, you know, you know what the best one is? It's part five. And I go, are you kidding me? <laughs> he goes, no, it's everything that, that these things should be. It's, it's, it's gross and it's horrible and it's sex and it's it. And I go, okay. And you know, they, they had a, a, a festival of all the Fridays at the Cine Family Theater here in Los Angeles years ago. And, you know, at the end of it, you know, all these people were walking out of, you know, part six at the end, and then all these other people, including Quentin, were coming in, you know, to see, you know, five, and you know, because they did some reason they were doing the order backwards. I don't know
2: why. But, you know, <laughs> to know, to know. add to the nightmarish continuity.
0: But you <laughs> heard it here, folks. First, so, Quentin Tarantino's favorite Friday the 13th movie is a
1: new beginning.
2: Yeah. <laughs> incredible so
1: you know for, for all those people that feel bad about it i mean my girlfriend uh, that was the first movie she saw so that you know was like you know her her you know entrance drug into the whole thing um and then she saw mine and then really like that so you know we actually met on facebook um because you know she had sent me a thing um saying how it was her favorite movie and stuff and then things just sort of you know, connected, and I suddenly found somebody that loves 80s horror movies and knows more about it than I do. I mean, all the actors, what are the films they were in?
0: You know, who directed
1: it? You know, <laughs> unbelievable knowledge of that stuff. I, I always tell the story yeah, on. I, I yeah. mean, no, go ahead. But, you know, I saw, I saw a recent uh, timeline that put mine at 1990 that it happened.
2: Well, I'm you know what? Freedom. That would make you sense because that's we where we're going to have it.
1: But, you know, to me, it's like, you know, we just sort of embraced the time that we were doing it in 86. So when I set (laughs) any kind of timeline like that I'm doing for like the Jason Never Dies script, um, that that was the thing. I said, you know, that's when it put him in the lake (laughs) is 1986. And that for me is the reality, because, you know, you got to remember, guys, when, you know, this stuff was like junk food for the. The, um,
2: oh, of course. You know, the, the
1: masses, <laughs> you know, during the 80s, and these guys didn't give give a shit about anything matching or being, you know, important <laughs> from the previous one. You know, it, it it just was like, you know, you know, they're going to open and play in two weeks and then be gone, and and that's yep. it. There wasn't, you know, all the DVD market and VHS and Beta and all that stuff. Disc, you know, laser disc. None of that stuff, you know, had occurred yet. So. You know, it, it you know, it, it just built a whole different audience than anybody ever dreamed of. And it's like, well, how do you explain this? It's like, uh, and
2: then we weren't, we were up 35 years about... later. Yeah.
1: <laughs> and, and that's why it's so notable
0: that the Tommy Jarvis character did survive through three films that you guys took the care, particularly yours with the, the script for Jason lives to bring him back and kind of give him a finality with uh, Jason.
1: Yeah. And then, you know, Vincent on his, you know, Never Hike Alone, he's, you know, continuing, you know, the the Tommy character in there, uh, which I think is very cool because I, I don't, you know, I don't have Tommy in the, the script I just did. I kind of went the route that I was going to do something that sort of happened, you know, after everybody kind of moved away and things. And I wanted this. I had this idea about having an all female cast and then Jason so that there wouldn't be, you know, any guys to kill, and the girls had to fight for themselves, and it wasn't about the Me Too generation for me at all. It just was like I wanted to have a bunch of innocents, you know, basically high school girls you know, there that had no idea about Jason, so it's not like savvy like, you know, part six is where they make jokes about him and all that. They came from another state to stay there and, you know, heard nothing about this, so this is really like a hell of a shock. <laughs> you don't have to deal with this this thing
2: so wait, were you offered at any point a chance to do part 7 yes immediately yeah
1: right as soon as the reviews came in and, the, and the, you know the box office wasn't as big as they were hoping uh, but if I seem to remember alien 2 had just come out the week yes. before or two weeks before or whatever yeah, you can't compete with
0: that one line,
1: right but, <laughs> no and there was a you know a lot of people that were like you know fuck you you know it's not going to be jason i'm not coming so you know we didn't really build an audience until you know after the fact so that that certainly affected it but there was enough success with it and frank really loved it and went you know went to a screening his father was head of paramount went to the midnight screening too and had hearing part that that was happening in Westwood and the crowd was just going you know apeshit and you know they both looked at me and nodded and you know it was it was great <laughs> it was one of those you know great moments in your life uh, but Frankie immediately said you know how about doing part seven and I went I don't know what I would do i I, I sort of like did everything in this thing that I could possibly bring to it um i don't I don't want to repeat the same exact formula again because it won't be you know, surprising. It'll just be me copying me. Um, and then Frank said, well, what about Jason and Freddie in the same movie? I went, wait a minute. How are you going to pull that off? And know, Freddie's <laughs> this new line. He said, we're working on this thing. We're working on it. You know, are you up for it? And I go, well, that's a hell of a challenge because Freddie exists in the dream realm and Jason, you know, for all intents and purposes, <laughs> you know, is here in the real world. Um, <laughs> even though now I made him like this Terminator, unstoppable, not a zombie, but, you know, definitely, you know, walking dead. Um, And let let me think about it. I mean, that would be a hell of a challenge. And that's certainly something the audiences would have not, you know, ever anticipated would happen, like Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. So um, he came back and he said, "Now New Line just doesn't want to give it up, you know, Um, but do you have any other ideas you'd like to do? And I go, uh, well, you guys own Cheech and Chong, right? And we, yeah. What? So well, what about Cheech and Chong weed, Jason? Like Abby and Costello met Frankenstein. Oh, yeah. And he laughed his head at us and said, you know, that's a that's a funny idea, but I really think the Cheech and Chong audience isn't going to like the horror and the horror audience isn't going to like the Cheech and Chong. And I went, they smoke the same weed. I mean, I think it's the same audience, you know? Um, and he goes, nah, I just don't think it. So, you know, I said, that's it, the ideas I have right now, you know, if I come up with something, you know, I'll let you know. And then of course, you know, Frank Senior introduced me to Dino Laurentiis, who, you know, was hoping I could do a horror movie for him. And I said, No, I want to do Date with an Angel. So that became, you know, the, the, the Dino movie. But if the Mancusos hadn't introduced me to him, that that would have not happened. So it literally took me, you know, 33 years later before I came up with something that I thought, all right, I'm sitting in the theater. I've got a Yahoo audience there. What would be pleasing them right now? Because I love that kind of audience that talks to the screen and things that we seem to have lost. And it's like, I'd love to have a shot at trying to see if we can get back, you know, that kind of reaction that, you know, we had in the films of the seventies and eighties and a little bit into the nineties. And then after internet and all the stuff and all the cable and things, audiences just went passive and just kind of sit there and, and enjoy it, but you know, there's like no verbal stuff. I mean, only occasionally somebody go, holy shit, you know, but in the days, you know, to see people get up out of their seats and, you know, go up and down the aisles like, oh shit, oh man, oh god, you know, come back down again, no no, 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 you know, and there was a lot of people doing it. I mean, when we had our preview screening at Paramount, there was a, you know, ultimate deluxe Yahoo! crowd that it stood in the sun for like eight hours, getting drunk, getting stoned, and it came into the screening and you couldn't hear one fucking word in the whole movie. They were just so riotous to the entire thing, loved it, had a ball. I was like, I have no idea how to judge the movie. Did it work? And Frank goes, yeah, it worked great. We need three more kills. He said, what? Yeah, we need three more kills. I said I got thirteen. I wanted thirteen kills. He goes, nope, got to kill three more times. Figure it out. So <laughs> that's where I went. All right, well, if we're not using the caretaker, if it is his father. You know, I can off him. Uh, we can certainly make the you know the killing of uh, of uh, the girl who gets pulled through the window. You know, more graphic with twisting her head, and pulling that off, which of course the sensors cut. And then came up with the thing with the you know the two kids out. Uh, mean, we were kids, but you know the couple out in the in the woods that that Jason skewers, and so I basically sort of you know fulfilled what he wanted there. I don't know why he felt that you know from that screen, but somehow he just felt that I needed you know a little bit more. So you know that that was the only other thing that you know that imposed besides his you know direction of you know what about Alice Cooper. So you know both things worked. So can't can't complain.
2: Wow, just happy instances, I guess. It's pretty amazing. Uh, with the film itself, especially if you look at the, the the movie that preceded it directly, um, there's such a distinct style to it. I know Mike Rothman's not on this episode, but he really loves the use of, you know, like the shadows and the trees and the moonlighting. Uh, a couple of questions about that. Was that purposeful when you were shooting? And if you had to pick uh, three specific movies that influenced Jason lives, what would you say that those three movies were?
1: Mm. Yeah, that, that part of the question would be a little tougher to answer other than just basically blanketed into the whole, you know, universal horror movies, you know, from the thirties and forties.
2: Frankenstein would be one, obviously, right?
1: Yeah. And I mean, I've, and some fans have done this. Um, I've stated you know, a few times that, you know, watch, take the color out, watch the movie in black and white, mm. because I really wanted it to be, you know, contrasty and look cool as a black and white, you know, movie. Um, So in shooting it, that was kind of the marching orders that I was, you know, working with uh, John Cranhouse on that, you know, the lighting, the feel of it has to be kind of gothic. You know, we're, we're, we're making this camp into something that's not just a typically, you know, you look at the original Friday the 13th and everything is so brightly lit. I mean, it's like ridiculous. There's no mood. There's no texture. But it didn't matter. You know, the audience was fine with that. I just felt I wanted this to really have a feeling of a movie and a world that, you know, had, you know, shadows in it and, um, you know, had contrast in the colors, the use of color and things. So, yeah, it was a it was a very uh, Kind of meticulously planned uh, approach to the film. Um, I don't think anything just happened accidentally. Um, mm-hmm. Maybe the best thing that kind of happened as an accident was literally the last thing we shot, which was the uh, motorhome. You know, taking that flight and you know hitting the ground and stuff, and Jason standing up on top of it, which is like one of my favorite sort of iconic shots right of the shot. movie, is him standing there with the flames underneath. And if you look behind him, the sun, you know, the sky is just starting to brighten, because we literally were like, oh shit, we got to get this, we got to get this before the sun comes up. So, you know, we just, you know, just made it. But actually, that that color of blue back there, you know, from the standpoint of a you know piece of photography, really looks great because it's not just black back there. There's you know, there's like this you know darkish blue color to it. The way we timed it and things in, in post. But, you know, things like that were the only kind of things that kind of happened by luck. Um, but everything else was, you know, very, very planned. And, you know, the use of filters and, you know, grab filters and a lot of that stuff that, you know, we did in the photography. Let's
0: see, where were we I, I was enthralled. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, let's uh Let's talk about the Friday the 13th game for a minute. You wrote the scripts behind the Pamela Voorhees tapes, but how involved were you with the actual conception of the game? It feels like Jason Lives kind of set the template. uh, And did you have any say in the Jarvis tapes?
1: Um, I had no, you know, you know, I mean, they basically had done everything already uh, when I was approached about the Pamela, you know, uh, Voorhees tapes. Um, and, you know, I, what little bit I saw, I was like, is that Kane? Hotter doing those? Things? He's like, yeah. And I go, God damn, is that fucking violent. I'm like, you know, I was, I couldn't believe it. I said, you'd never be able to get away with that. And they're like, yeah, isn't that great? And I go, yeah, I guess if you're a fan, it's like, it's the ultimate, you know, offing somebody and just, you know, they've obviously been dead, you know, five minutes ago and he's still slamming the body around. So I said, you know, well, let me let me think about you know what would happen, and I can't, you know, I literally I can't remember if if they were saying it's the night that Pamela is talking to the police um, and they're still looking for her son. If that was their idea or mine, I really don't remember. I'll I'll certainly give them the credit because I know they, you know, they came up with a lot of things. But um, I, you know, I also wanted to direct it. Uh, you know, because it was like a radio play, and I felt like mm, casting the wrong person, you know, persons in this thing could really kill it. And also, if they they didn't, you know, kind of play the atmosphere, you know, hear the fan, hear the crickets, you know, out the open window, then the footsteps, all that stuff, you know, it would just sound very um, stagnant and, and you know not interesting and not real. And the sound of the old you know, tape recorder going on and a little screech of the, you know, the wheels of the, uh, of the tape recorder. So, you know, but they did not want to pay for a plane ticket to have me go up there and and do that. So I'm a little disappointed, not a woman who played Pamela. She was amazing. I mean, she really had it down and did a great performance, but, you know, I guess it's one of the other guys just, you know, he, he was so close to the microphone and it's like, Pamela, what do you think you're doing about that? I don't know. <laughs> you know and it just sounded like a, a radio broadcaster right up against the mic. And I said, you know, this is supposed to be a shitty little tiny mic that's sitting on the table. You know, you're going to hear the whole room. It's going to echo a bit. And it's just got to sound like, you know, you're eavesdropping, you know, into this conversation. But that's not the way, you know, it was done. So that that's a lament to me. But the thing I tried to do with it was I thought, you know, I don't want it just to be about, you know, her telling us all the stuff we already know. You know, I want to give something else to it that hopefully people will go, real? Is that real? Happy? You know. And what I decided is, you know, I never called Jason's father Elias. Um, That Mm. came out of, Jason goes to hell. Uh, yes. because I thought it came out of the comic book initially, cause that's the first time I saw it. it was in the Friday the 13th comic. And they had, you know, a thing about her pregnant and they had this, you know, big macho looking guy that was the father that beat her and beat Jason and things. And that wasn't kind of the direction that I saw his father. You know, I saw his father much more in a lean, you know, just like pure evil. Um, you know, maybe a face like, um, julian beck in in the second um poltergeist, poltergeist movie yeah the, you know with a face that you just go oh shit, that guy's scary you know <laughs> and then that one's of dinner and you know it just just more almost Bengali ish and it's probably my influence with you know my one dark night with the raymar character being that kind of look um but it's just something that i that always when i see those guys you know it's like they're not a car salesman. You know, they're not a they're not religious figure, they're not somebody that, you know, if you showed up at your doorstep, you know, you would want to buy anything from. They're just something that's really off-putting. And so I kind of changed, you know, the the legacy a bit and said when, when they're talking to Pamela and the, she mentions, you know, her husband and they say, you know, oh, Elias. And goes, well, yes, he was my husband, but he wasn't Jason's father. Mm. And, you know, basically, uh, my take on it is, you know, during the marriage, uh, Pamela was raped by this guy uh, who basically still remains nameless. Um, But she talks about, you know, I'll never forget the look in his eyes as he was doing this to me. I never, ever want to, you know, see that man ever again. You know, I, I, I had nothing but nightmares about it. So I wanted to sort of get away from the big, you know, butch macho guy. And if, and if he did, you know, was married to her. Yes, he was pissed off. She's pregnant. Obviously, he knew it wasn't him. And then out comes this, you know, slightly deformed, obviously, you know, mentally challenged kid, which she thought nothing about knocking around, too. So you can still, you know, hold on to that Elias thing, but I really, you know, like the idea of Jason's father being, you know, something more pure evil for whatever reason. You know, there's something about him that it's really disturbing.
2: Well, you mentioned Julian Beck as a touchstone for that, and I have, looking back, it's kind of fond memories now of. They would always show the Poltergeist 2 trailer in the mornings for some reason, back in like 1986 or 87, whenever it came out. And the old man, Julian Beck, always terrified me as a child. So I would tell my dad to tell me when the commercial was over with. And so one time he said, yeah, it's over, it's over. And I look up and it's right when his face is right in the, <laughs> at, at the screen door. <laughs> And my dad is just crack I'm, fi- I'm five years old. I'm crying. But looking back, I thought, that's a pretty good bit, Dad. That's pretty good. <laughs> that's pretty good. And now I'm talking about horror movies 30 years later. So, again, okay, thanks a lot.
1: Yeah. I know somebody uh, asked me the question, what, what first scared you? And I said, um, you know, I haven't thought about that. Um,
2: you know what it is? Wait
1: a minute. I was like four, maybe, maybe five, but, you know, sitting on the toilet by myself and, you know, the door suddenly cracked open and my dad had this, you know, horrific monster mask on. And, you know, so I just saw the crack of the door and then he pulled it open and, you know, lunged in. And I just went hysterical, you know, just the shock and the terror. And, you know, I, and then my mother started yelling at him. Why'd you do that to him? I'm kidding. <laughs> on the back. And I thought, you know, that was the first time that I just like, you know, practically you know, I had already shit, but, you know, I shit myself again, I get <laughs> such a blast of fear. Um, but that, yeah, the same kind of thing is, you know, dad fucking around, you know, and I did, you know, stuff to my kids all the time, you know, with both fantasy and, and you know, what was that? Wait, you'd hear that? Or, you know, wait a minute, look up there. Is that Santa Claus? That's not Santa Claus. No, there's no Santa Claus. Oh, it is, dad. I see it too. You know, always was coming up with the fantasy world. Um, and it just like, you know, to me, that's part of the responsibility of being a father. You know,
2: Yeah, I think I like all, all generations connect by fathers trying to scare their children, which is always, which is, a, which is somewhat comforting in a way. Um, we have a couple more questions for you, Tom, before we let you go. But I do want to go back to, once again, the whole, the Frank Capper um, influence on your career. You know, you directed, obviously, the the Freddy's Nightmares episode, It's a Miserable Life, which is a great takeoff on that title. But more specifically, we also have another podcast that I used to be a part of, and a lot of people on this podcast are currently still doing called The Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast. And I would never hear the end of it if we didn't at least briefly discuss uh, your adaptation of Sometimes They Come Back, which, uh, just lets let you know, we actually found uh, more entertaining than the short story it was based on. And I think it's because you changed you know, some of the through line, especially the very end, and you added that. Capra-esque ending. Uh, Can you share some stories or a specific memory from that production?
1: Yeah, that's, um, you know, for the the five people that know, you know, there's a book that Joe Madri did on me called A A Strange Idea of Entertainment, Conversations with Tom McLaughlin. And he literally, you know, devoted an entire chapter to the making of Sometimes They Come Back because it was at an incredibly, traumatic period of my life that I would had just gone through when I, you know, stepped into shooting that. And, you know, I, there was so much emotion, you know, running through me. Um, you know, my wife, uh, at that time, Nancy was um, pregnant with our daughter and she was about to, you know, give birth. My father was dying of cancer and I was, you know, going and visiting him. I had three, um, not three, I got uh, uh, two uh, episodes or, or series uh, for Universal. Um, uh, some uh, God, I'm not blanking. Um, the Game from Outer Space and She Wolf of London, and had to you know get tw- twenty directors, twenty writers, you know, to do all these episodes. I was doing Stephen Banks's Showtime special, you know, uh, for uh, uh, his the beginning of a series for PBS. It wasn't the home entertainment, but it was like the Stephen Bang show um, and prepping. Sometimes they come back. I just had way too much on my plate, you know, and mm-hmm. I was literally trying to juggle all these, you know, plates at once, like the old, you know, act plates on sticks. And um, as it worked out, um, you know, I, I, you know, didn't like the script that was initially written by the two guys that did uh, Jewel of Nile um, and it just, you know, Dino and I both agreed it just wasn't quite scary enough. So, you know, we had uh, another uh, writer again, excuse me, sort of age. Um, who came in, he, he did the, the Sits of Science series and. Really? God, why can't I think of his name? Um, but he came in to do um, you know the, the rewrite on it, and we sat down and you know I said I really wanted to be family, uh, you know be really an important part of this, you know which is to me one of the things that so worked about Poltergeist that you know really kind of got into them and cared about them, and you know the the you know, the ghosts were going to be like flesh and blood kind of ghosts, that, mm-hmm. you know that other people saw as well but did not know. You know the the backstory. You know that obviously Tim Matheson knew, and you know he ended up you know also putting in all these other kind of Stephen King type touches. You know with the car, you know and and you know a little bit of the standby by Me relationship with the boys. Definitely. So there was a lot of those kind of King touches. In fact, you know when when King saw it, you know he said, you know the movie is like the greatest hits of Stephen King all in one movie. <laughs> um, but it, I, I was so emotional when I, when I started that because now my father had just died in the middle of doing, doing Steven's comedy show. So, uh, I had to, you know, deal with that, you know, uh, the funeral and all that. And then, you know, my daughter was born, which was, you know, quite joyous and, you know, managed to get all the, the, the uh, people on the, sh- the, the two shows for universal and, um, you know, puts down focus on, you know, the, uh, they came back, uh, sometimes they come back. And the whole process was just, you know, really, uh, you know, we all really liked each other, uh, you know, in terms of the cast and me, but the crews came from all other parts of the country, you know, to Kansas, where we were shooting, and the only reason we're shooting in Kansas is because the production manager's wife said, if we don't get out of Los Angeles, Back to Kansas, I'm leaving you. So he managed to, you know, you know, get the show set there, and then of course we had to bring everybody in you know, to to make it. So there was a lot of people quitting along the way. There was mm. just, you know, the VP. Um, he took two to three hours to set up things, and on day one it snowed. So he got the one scene of Tim Matheson on the on the. Uh, steps of his house and Brooke Adams come out and say, you okay, Jim, and go back in. And that was it. That was all we could shoot. Else was like two feet of snow. So we were behind on day one, you know, practically by a day. And then every day something happened wrong. You know, the transportation people, when they quit, they left all the trucks and everything at the last location